At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. those of you who don't know me, my name is Kurt McDonald. I have the great honor of being one of the pastors here at the church, and today it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Are you guys enjoying Esther? Well, if you have not been uh, with us, last week we completed chapter one uh, of Esther, and here's what we saw. We saw a great king, King Ahasuerus, Uh, That is his Persian name. He's also known by his Greek name, Xerxes. And he was sitting on his throne, uh, very powerful, very wealthy. And what was this king doing with all of his power and all of his wealth? Was he uh, helping out the widows and the poor? Was he feeding the hungry? Is that what this king was doing? No, this, this king was feasting. He threw a party for himself. <laughs> Anybody ever thrown a party, a pity party for yourself, but never, never a party like this. This was, I mean, just a ridiculous party, 187 days, all you can eat, all you can drink for thousands of your friends. And, and the whole point of this party was to put on display his wealth. That's how wealthy this guy is. It took him 187 days to display his wealth. Most of us take about five minutes. It's like, there's the house and the car. I'm still paying on it, and that's it. That's all I got. But it took him 187 days to display all of his wealth. And the crowning glory of the whole thing was supposed to be when he brought out his beautiful queen. Now, not to necessarily put her beauty on display, but to show how powerful he was because he owned a beautiful thing. And so when he sent his seven eunuchs to go reach Vashti, the queen, and to bring her into the presence of the king and all of his thousands of drunken friends, and he's drunk and everybody's drunk and he wants her to parade herself in front of everybody, what does she say? Uh Uh-uh. No, it ain't happening. I'm not coming around you or your drunk friends. It ain't happening. I'm not going to do it. And so what we saw in the beginning of this book was the might, the wealth, the display of all of this power. And the intent of chapter one was to show that all of that wealth, all of that power was really just kind of silly. It's is really just a facade. If you really were to look behind the curtain, what you would really see is the man pulling the levers like in the Wizard of Oz. That, that's, that was the intent of chapter one. It was to show that they are not high and mighty, but really they are drunk and clueless is what is really going on. That's the backdrop of this great and mighty king. And so today we begin chapter two. We're going to meet Mordecai. More importantly, we're going to get to meet Esther. Are y'all ready? Okay, let's get going in Esther chapter two. It says, after these things. Now here's what's happened so far in in history. Here's what we know um, from, from the history books is what happens is what the king decides to do is go after those pesky Greeks. 
right? The, so he's got this big kingdom, 127 provinces spread out all over the place. And there's this one group of people, those Greeks, man, his, even King Ahasuerus' dad tried to get the Greeks under control. And so now that's what he's going to try to do. He's got the most massive army the world had ever seen. And he's going to march that army right over to Greece and tell them what they can do. And so he's trying to get them under control. Nobody can get them under control. And so he sends the Greeks a message. The message is this. He tells the Spartans, lay down your arms. And history records that the Spartans respond, come and take it. <laughs> and so we all know, so the, the, most of the dudes in the room, you've seen the movie 300. I don't recommend watching it. The ladies in there don't wear enough clothes. But, but what happens is they are defeated at the Battle of Thermopylae. 300 Spartan warriors uh, essentially stand against the massive Persian empire. And so that has happened in the section between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Isn't that cool? I love history, man. It's so neat. So in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Battle of Thermopylae has has happened. So after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So it's been four years. He's lost the battle against the Greeks. He's lost his wife. And he's sitting on his royal throne in Susa. And the man who has everything is depressed. The, the man who has total control and power, who rules over half of the world's population, is depressed. And he's grumpy. And he's sad. And so it says that he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed. It's, it's almost, it's, <laughs> there should be a he in there, shouldn't there be? <laughs> he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what it just says had been decreed against her because he's not taking responsibility for the thing, is he? No, he's not taking responsibility for it. It's about Vashti and what she did and what had been decreed against her. And so he's sitting there remembering Vashti. He, he's depressed that he doesn't have his queen anymore. He's depressed that he lost the battle. And so the dudes that are around him are going to try to come up with an idea to cheer up grumpy old King Ahasuerus, because if the king ain't happy, and nobody happy. Verse 2, then the king's young men who had attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel under the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women and let their cosmetics be given them and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So we're certain that the king is grumpy because they come up with this plan to make him feel better because he's lost the battle, he's lost his queen. And so this is what these royal advisors come up with. Did you see it said that the king's young men. It, it makes you think, where's, where's the age and wisdom? Where's the old sage that advises the king? 
Like if you didn't think from chapter one that this guy just has bad advisors around him, chapter two seals the deal. This guy has, has idiot advisors around him. This plan does not sound like it's coming from royal advisors. This plan sounds like it's coming from teenage boys because their plan is to go into all of these provinces. I mean, he, he rules over 127 provinces and he's gonna send these officers into all the provinces. That's, at, at bare minimum, the commentators go back and forth about actually how many women are there. But I mean, at least 127, right? Maybe hundreds, maybe a thousand to gather all of these women in the middle of this city. Now, exactly what are they suggesting? Make no mistake. This is not a beauty contest. It's not a beauty contest. Why, why am I saying that? Because the charge is to go gather all the beautiful women. So all the women are beautiful. This is not a beauty contest. It's actually way worse. To even get into the competition, you had to be beautiful, and all of them were. But if you wanted to win, required a night with the king, meaning this is a performance-based competition. Now, just as a side note, this is not the main point of the text, and I'm, I'm letting you know, I know I'm going down a rabbit trail right now. But as we look at this advice that's coming to this king, it gives us pause, and we must reflect on who we allow to speak into our lives. We must pause and reflect and think about who we allow to give us advice, especially when we are in a vulnerable state. This king is depressed, he's upset, he's grumpy, and these guys come in and tell him what he wants to hear. Church family, when we are in depressed and vulnerable states, we love to hear what we want to hear. And instead, what we need is godly friends who are saturated in the gospel that will tell us no, that will tell us what we're thinking, what we're believing, what we're feeling is wrong and anti-gospel and anti-scripture. We need strong, godly friends who will come beside us and tell us when we're wrong. The king didn't have that. Rabbit trail officially over. Now, there is a pause in the narrative after that section, and what's going to happen is we're going to be introduced to Mordecai and we're going to be introduced to Esther. Now, even in the introduction of these two characters, how they are portrayed to us should give us red flags. How they are portrayed to us should give us red flags. Look at how they are introduced to us. I'm looking at verse 5. Are you all still with me? Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel. That's modern-day Iran. There was a Jew in Susa. What's a Jew doing in Susa? He's not supposed to be in Susa. If you remember from the first week, what we said was that the Jewish people were captured. They were taken off to Babylon. They, they were under slavery in the kingdom of Babylon. But then God raises up Persia. Persia defeats Babylon. And the great king Cyrus says, hey, you guys can go back to Jerusalem. You, you can go back, you can rebuild your kingdom, you can worship there. Any Jewish people that want to go back, you can go back. He should have gone back. Don't you see the problem here? He can't go to the temple in Jerusalem and make sacrifices for his sin. He can't receive the, a priestly blessing from the Levitical priesthood. He, he can't, as a, per, as a child of God, he cannot be with the people of God in the promised land of God. He is far away from the very presence of God. What's he doing in Susa? Is he comfortable? Is he comfortable in that culture? 
Has, has he just acclimated to the way that things go in the Persian Empire? This is just, this is what they do. This is how they act. This is how, I've got a good job. I've got this house. I've got, you know, I'm comfortable here. It's a red flag. Now, there was a Jew in Susa. What are they doing in Susa? Maybe he's comfortable there. That's a question for us, church family. Are we comfortable in our culture? Are we comfortable with uh, the shows that our friends watch on Netflix? Are we comfortable with the way people talk? Are we comfortable with what the people around us value? And have we acclimated to our own culture? Or are we standing on the standards of God and saying, no matter what, I will follow him. I don't care if people think I'm crazy. I don't care if it makes me look silly. I will stand for God. If you're taking notes, the people of God are called to transform the culture, not become like it. We have been reconciled to God, church family. Do you know what that means? First off, it means there was a great chasm between us and God. It means that we could not get to him. We could not draw near to him. We could not then start to become like him in his, his communicable attributes. But we have been reconciled to him through the cross. And now what he says is begin to reconcile the world around you. That means the things that are broken. That means the things that are torn apart. We're supposed to be putting them back together. Okay, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, another red flag. Mordecai, you know what that means? It means son of Marduk. You guys know who Marduk is, right? The Babylonian god. His name means son of the Babylonian god. And what is even more strange is look at this the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who has been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So, so which is he? Because the lineage, his family lineage, do you see the family lineage there? Jair, Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. That links him back to, you know who? King Saul. A great king, a, a, a great Jewish king. So now we're, we're asking this question, which one is he? Is he son of Marduk? Is he a worshiper of the pagan Babylonian God? Or is he son of King Saul, worshiper of the God of the Bible? It's almost as if he has two identities. Now, verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther. Wow, two more names. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor so she's an orphan. Uh, Mordecai adopts her. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. Now, Hadassah means myrtle, like the tree, like a myrtle branch. It, it, it has this connotation of, of beauty and fertility and sweet-smelling fragrance. That's Hadassah, right? This beautiful Jewish name. But she's called this other name. This other name is Esther, coming from, again, the Babylonian god Ishtar, connected with uh, the symbol of an eight-point star, Esther, Esther, Ishtar. That's where this name comes from. Again, we're forced to ask the question, which one is she? 
is she the beautiful, fragrant, lovely Jewish Hadassah, or is she Esther, Ishtar? The worshiper of uh, Ishtar is known as the queen of the heavens in the Babylonian religion. Which one is she? It's very confusing. We're, We're torn between this idea of, are they faithfully following the God of the Bible, or have they completely and totally assimilated into their pagan culture? Now, what happens next gets even more dark. We've just been told about her beauty. We know that this edict has gone out to all the provinces. Officers have been appointed to gather all of the beautiful women. We're just told that she's beautiful. And verse 8 gets dark. When the king's order and his edict were pronounced, and when the young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Where, where are my dads in the room? Keep your hands up if you've got little girls. When we read this, there should be a righteous sense of rage that your little daughter is being taken by the king into his palace, and now you are called, she is going to be called to compete in this performance. She, she is going to be taken from your home and put into that palace with a group of all these other women. There is a one intent that is placed on her. There is a one intent for her, and that is to perform. And so there should be a sense of rage in us as we read this. There should be this sense of, that will never happen. You know what will happen? If that, if that, uh, send that officer to my house. See what happens. Let him come up in here and see what happens. I will turn into a rage monster. I, I will be like Chuck Norris on steroids, on, on like Rambo stuff with machine guns and bazookas and sniper rifles. And, and like I will do all kind of stuff to this guy that, I mean, I, I'm, that should fill us with rage to see what is happening here in this text. And church family, right behind that rage, there should be a sense of sorrow because we live in a nation of men who do not have the wherewithal or the funds to create their own harems physically, but they do it digitally. They might not have a harem in their house, but they have a harem on their phone and they have a harem on their laptop. And so as much rage as we get filled with by looking at this and thinking about our own daughters, there should be an equal sense of sorrow as we think about the amount. And we're talking about one man with one harem. But in our country, there are thousands and thousands of men with harems on their phones and on their laptops. This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. So if you were told by reading the book of Esther that Mordecai entered Esther into a beauty contest and she won, you've got the wrong story. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here at all. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of details to be desired here. We really don't know the full extent of what's actually happening. It says... Esther also was taken, okay, against her will. Text doesn't say. It just says that she was taken. Well, what did she think about it? Well, we don't know. Was, was Mordecai fighting the, the officers at the door, or was he happy for the opportunity that she might become queen? The, the text 
simply does not tell us. It just says the plain facts that she was taken and she went and that's it. That's all the text tells us. Maybe this will help. Uh, let's ask this question. Does Esther and Mordecai maintain a consistent walk with the Lord? If we're trying to understand this text, maybe this question will help. Again, because we don't know the circumstances of her being taken. So are they consistently walking with the Lord? Let's give a yes. Let's, let's try to give a yes answer. Okay, so, so let's try to answer yes. If you want to answer yes, here's what that means. It means that you have to overlook some very clear violations that happen here. She, she's, she goes to the palace. She eats the food. Um, so that means that she really wasn't eating the food that would have like disqualified. She wasn't allowed to eat that kind of food, but she's in the palace and it says that she's given all this food, but she doesn't eat it. Also, that would mean that when she goes into the king's room at night, they read a book. They play Monopoly or something other than what the text seems to tell us happens. In addition, King Ahasuerus has to convert to Judaism before they're married because she's also not allowed to marry a pagan. So if you want to answer yes, and if, if you're like me um, in, in kind of leading up to this book, I, I went and I've watched all the movies I could find on Esther, um, and there's, there's several of them out there, some good, some not so good, but there are some of those films that try to portray Esther as this, I mean, completely, she's walking around quoting scripture, she, she's leading Bible studies in the harem, um, she actually does go into the king's room that night, and they sit and talk, and okay, so that, that's an answer that you can give, I just don't think it's a very good one. I, I don't think that's what the text is leading us to believe. Now, you could say, that, that she's 100% forced. And so this is not uh, essentially a contest. This is trafficking, right? She, she's absolutely forced. But again, I don't think that's what's happening. Look at verse 9 with me. And the young woman pleased him. This is Haggai. So the young woman pleased him, Haggai, and won, she won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now, you don't have to, but you can. If you let your eyes jump down to the middle of verse 15, it says this. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And verse 17 says, and she won grace and favor in his sight. Three times. She won grace and favor. She was winning and she won the king's favor. What does that lead you to believe? If she's winning, it means she's playing the game. It means that she's compromising. It means that she's becoming who they want her to be. If you're taking notes, Mordecai and Esther convinced themselves that obedience was too costly. And sadly, many Christians do the same. Esther could have refused the food. Esther could have refused to go. You, you say, wait, but, but if she would have refused, then they would have killed her. Her life belongs to God anyway. What did they do to Vashti when Vashti refused? They just kicked her out. They didn't kill her. They just banished her. They, they gave Vashti what she wanted anyway. Vashti didn't want to be around drunk King Ahasuerus, so, so they kicked her out. 
She could have refused. Mordecai could have refused. They could have fought. They could have done something. They could have. As a matter of fact, if you think back just to the kingdom before, there was a young man. His name was Daniel. Daniel was given the food and the wine. And Daniel says, Daniel says, I refuse to defile myself with the king's food and the king's wine. He refused to defile himself. And so I think what we're seeing here is compromise. The problem, she holds herself to the values of the empire. What are the values of the Persian empire? You ask, the values of the Persian empire are this. A woman's worth is in her beauty and her sexuality. A man's worth is his power and his wealth. Aren't you glad we don't live back then? That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? A place with those type immoral and pagan values that, that a woman's worth is in her beauty and sexuality and a man's worth is in his power and his wealth. Times don't change. Now, not only do they compromise Mordecai and Esther, but they also conceal. Look with me at verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. Why? For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was going to happen to her. He told her to conceal her fate. Why would he tell her to conceal her fate? Why would he tell her to conceal her heritage and her lineage? Well, because he wants it to go well for her. It's clear that he loves her right? He, he, every day he's going to check on her. Every day he's going up the palace. How is she? What's going on? It's clear. Listen, you can't make these characters black and white. You can't make these characters evil or, or good. That, that's not how this is going to let us do that. It, it, it won't allow us. These are complicated characters. It's clear that he loves her, and because he loves her so much, he thinks the best thing to do is for her to conceal her faith. That way she's not targeted. That way she's not persecuted for her faith, and she'll have a better chance and a more comfortable life. This is what I believe is happening in the text. So the answer to the question from earlier the reason that they have two names is because they are trying to survive in two worlds. She suppressed her identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God and made herself a loyal citizen of the kingdom of Persia. Right? Do, do you see how subtle concealing can be? It's not that you have to deny your faith. You just don't have to say anything about it. You, you, you don't have to say that you're an atheist. You just don't have to say anything at all. No one in this story is counting on God to show up. No one in this story is counting on God to show up. They make a plan assuming God is not going to show up. What should have the plan been? Step one, pray that God kills King Ahasuerus. That's step one. God, we, we want the, the Exodus stuff. We want fire from heaven. Like we, we want floods. I mean, cover him with frogs and gnats and God, whatever you got up there, just dump it out on King Ahasuerus. That's step one. Step two is to refuse and fight. Do not comply. That, that should have been. And, and if they kill me, they kill me. We're going to pray that God shows up and does something. That is, that's nowhere in their plan at all. 
Their plan is to conform and conceal, to compromise and conceal. Just, just go along with the flow. Don't, you know, uh, what, what is that ancient, uh, old ancient Chinese proverb? The nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered. And so what, what you do is you just lay down, right? Just, just, just go with the flow. Don't ruffle any feathers. Don't irritate your boss or your coworkers or your family members with all this, you know, Christian talk. Just conceal it. That's what's happening in this text, if you're taking notes, the sad truth is that we have never been in the danger like Esther, yet we too have compromised and concealed our faith. So before you go looking down your nose at Esther and Mordecai for this plan, you need to look in the mirror. Because church family, you, you are just like them. You know that you are supposed to give generously, but it feels better to keep it in the savings account or spend it on something else compromise. You gave your kid a cell phone way before they were ready to handle the responsibility of a cell phone because you didn't want them to feel like the odd one out at school. Compromise. All your friends at work are talking about that show on Netflix that is inappropriate for Christians to watch, but you watch it anyway so you can talk with them about it. Compromise. Your boss tells a sexually suggestive joke and you laugh along with everyone else. Compromise. You're single and you're dating, but you don't want to tell them that you're a Christian because you want to see the relationship goes. That's concealment. One of your family members says, I could never believe in a God that sends people to hell, and you say silent. That's concealing. We are just like Mordecai and Esther. We conceal. We conceal. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since it was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for the women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So after the beautifying process, what would happen is there's essentially two harems. Okay? He, he's got one over here and one over here. This one is, is the ones that he has not been with. This harem over here is the ones that he has been with. And so how this would work is they, they go in um, at night, why is that significant? Because he, he's not taking them out on a date. He, he's not spending time with them. He's not getting to know them. They go in at night because this is his intent for them. They go in at night and they leave in the morning, meaning they don't have breakfast together. They, they don't talk. They don't get to know one another. This is a single intent encounter. They go in at night and then they leave. So, so there's a kind of a couple of options after that transaction happens, a couple options on the table. W one option is they just go back, to they, they get moved over to the other harem, and that's it. He doesn't call them, he doesn't call them back, and, and so they essentially live a, a very lavish but pointless life in the palace. Or he could call them back a couple of times. Or, I mean, if it, if it goes really good, they, they get to be called one of his wives, meaning that their offspring, their kids, might have an opportunity to uh, advance in the kingdom, uh, maybe get some lands, maybe uh, have an official position or something like that. And if it really goes well, then they get to become the queen or, or the, the highest 
in uh, all of that kingdom. Verse 15 and 18, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. Let me just pause right there. If you do a word search on this word love in the scripture, uh, it, has, it has a variety of meanings. So again, if you, if you want to kind of lean over this way and, and give like benefit of the doubt and be a little bit nicer, you can take it to mean that he really did love her. Uh, this word is used throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as love, like as Christ loved the church. This word love is also used of lustful intent several times throughout the Old Testament as well. So you make your own mind up. The king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, if you remember, I told you to look for the banquets in this book. Look for the feasts, because at the banquets and the feasts in this book, really big things happen. It's kind of like the, the, the scene changes or, or kind of these, these climaxes throughout the book that let us know things are happening. Then the king gave a great feast. What happens at the feast? Well, this is Esther's feast. This is where she's crowned, right? It, it, what's so interesting about Ahasuerus is most of the time you see him, he's drinking, he's at a feast, or people are telling him what to do. They're giving him advice, and, and he's following bad advice. So he's either drunk, feasting, or following bad advice. That's pretty much King Ahasuerus. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts of royal generosity. Throws a big party, cuts taxes. Everybody loves that. He's trying to make everybody happy, make everybody like him, make everybody like Esther. And all the provinces and gifts with royal generosity. Again, showing off his greatness, his power, how wealthy he is. This is what he is doing. Church family, I said it before, and I, I just want to point this out. There is a great temptation as we read the Bible, uh, even those of us coming up through, through uh, 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 in church, even raised in church, and, and you went to Sunday school, and, and there's a great temptation to look at these Bible characters through the lenses of black or white. That, so, because, here's, here's, what we, here's what we know, here's what we feel like, right? If you're a good person, if you do good things, then God will love you, and God will use you, Right? That's, that, that's great, you know, so, so just be a good person. Again, I just told you the story of Daniel. He stood up. Daniel did the, the good thing, right? Be like Daniel. Or, or what about Abraham, who had all this great faith? Have faith, be like Abraham. Except for Abraham traded off his wife to save his own skin. You know, but, oh, be like David. David was a man after God's own heart, who had an inappropriate sexual relationship with a woman that was not his wife, and then he killed her husband. You're like, what about Samson, right? Don't you want to be like Samson? No, you don't want to be like Samson. Samson also had inappropriate sexual relationships. What about Peter? Peter denied Christ. 
right? So, so you can look at all of these characters throughout the Bible and you can't say, oh, these guys are the good ones and God uses good people. There are no good people. We are all sinners in the sight of God. There are no great heroes in the Bible. There is one great hero and that hero is Jesus. That's what we have to see here. And so God, if, if, you're, if you're taking notes, the, the book is called Esther, not because she was a flawless hero. It is called Esther because God loved her despite the fact that she compromised. If you're taking notes, jot this down. We are not perfect people, but God has a perfect plan. We, we, are, not, we are compromisers. We, we are the ones that conceal, yet God can even use that. God can use our brokenness for his glory and for our good. So you might say, we have kids together and we're not married. You might say, I'm married to a non-believer. You might say, in, in, in my past, I, I got divorced for non-biblical reasons. You might say, I cheated on my spouse. I abused drugs and alcohol. I abandoned my own children because of my choices. I have painful relationships with my family. And let me be clear, church family, by no means does God think that your sin is okay. That's not what I'm saying. God does not think Esther and Mordecai's sin is okay, but God in his sovereignty has the power to use even our brokenness, even our sin for his glory and for our good. That's our God. That's our God. That's what, that's what he can do. If you're taking notes, God is not done with you because of the compromises that you have made in the past. Listen to me, church family. God is not done with you. He's not done with you. He has plans to bless you. He has plans to take you out of that. He has plans to take your brokenness, your mistakes, your sins, and he can use it and work it and make it for your good to change your story, to change the next generation, amen? To see your children walking with God, to see their children's children walking with God even out of the mistakes that you have made. That's how powerful our God is. He's not going to stop loving you. He's not going to stop chasing you. This story, it appears like God is nowhere. I told you guys, God is not mentioned one time in all of the book of Esther. Nowhere, not once. That Nobody's praying. Nobody's quoting scripture. God is not there. There's nothing. It looks like God is absent, but he is there behind the scenes, taking the brokenness of Mordecai, taking the compromises of Esther, and, and taking the concealing of their faith, and elevating them into a position to where she is Esther is going to be queen, at just the right time to save God's people. This is the God that we serve. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you're taking notes, in the book of Esther, God does not work through the visible hand of miracles, but his invisible hand of providence. God in his sovereignty uses even the compromises of Mordecai and Esther for his glory and for their good, and he will use their compromise as a part of his great plan to save his people. What can we take away from this as we, as we look upon this broken king, this broken kingdom, the, these two unfaithful servants of God? What, what is it that we're supposed to understand? What is it that we are supposed to take away? We can understand that Jesus is a better king than Ahasuerus. Amen. Jesus is a better king because what happens is King Ahasuerus is looking for a beautiful and pure bride. But Jesus comes and puts on human flesh and makes us into his beautiful and pure 
bride. Ahasuerus brings men into his kingdom and turns them into eunuchs. King Ahasuerus brings women into his kingdom and he abuses them. But Jesus brings men and women into his kingdom and he empowers us and he loves us and he blesses us and he serves us. Jesus is a much better savior than Esther. You see, Esther is a picture of Jesus. Do you see that? So she is going to go on to save the people of God. And so Esther is a picture of Jesus, but Jesus is a much better savior than Esther. You see, just like Esther, Jesus was offered a kingdom if only he would compromise. Matthew 4 tells us that Satan took Jesus to the top of a mountain and Satan showed Jesus all of these kingdoms, all of the kingdoms of the world. You see, Ahasuerus only ruled over half of the world, but Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms over all the world and he told Jesus, if you'll only compromise, if you'll just bow the knee to me, then you can have all of these kingdoms. He could have all of the kingdoms and, and, he would have no suffering whatsoever. In that moment, if he would just compromise, there would be no arrest. There would be no false trials. There'll be no scourging. There'll be no beating. There'll be no crown of thorns. There'll be no nails for his hands and his feet. And there'll be no humiliation of being hung naked on a cross. There would be no death for him. In that moment, Satan offered him more comfort, more pleasure, more power, more status, more money than we could ever imagine. And all Jesus had to do is compromise. Yet, Jesus chose more pain, more suffering, more loneliness, more humiliation and shame and agony than we could ever imagine because of his deep love for us. That is a better king. That is a better savior. There's never been a greater temptation to compromise. But here's my final point. I'm done. I'm out of here. Here we go. But Jesus, our great king, does not compromise his obedience to the father, but goes to the cross and sheds his blood for those who would compromise their obedience. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we have compromised. We have concealed. We are just like Esther and Mordecai. We are in desperate need of you, not only to forgive us, but we are in desperate need to come into our lives and make something out of the mess that we have created. Many of us have and are and still and will continue to make messes out of our lives, but God, we praise you and we lift up your holy name. We glorify you because you are the God that takes ashes and turns them into beautiful things, that takes brokenness and fixes it, that reconciles. God, we lift you up because you are the sovereign God over all of the universe whose invisible hand is at work even now. We give you praise and we ask you to transform us into more of the image of your son. God, get us away from compromise. Get us away of concealing. Make us be a people that would stand boldly for God that would proclaim his name and not conceal. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.